Buenos dias and happy Monday, Liberty Kitty Cats. Before we get into today's episode, I got to tell you about something, and this something is free. Don't you love free things? I sure do. And you can get a free report from my friend, Mikkel Thorup of the Expat Money Show. This report is called 19 International Strategies to Protect and Grow Your Wealth. And guys, there may never have been a more important time in history to have a plan B, to have an escape plan, to have wealth, assets, and residencies outside of the United States. And that is why I want you to head over to expatmoneyshow.com slash lions to get this free download called, again, 19 International Strategies to Protect and Grow Your Wealth. You will get ironclad protection so strong no lawyer will even think of suing you. You'll make creditors terrified to even look at your personal assets and defend yourself from governments trying to steal your money through taxation. This is free information that you cannot afford. Literally, you cannot afford not to go grab it. So head over to expatmoneyshow.com slash lions and grab this free report today. We need to empower people with not just the philosophical tools, but the inspiration to break free from the system. Welcome to the flagship Lions of Liberty podcast, your weekly dose of education, inspiration, and real-world application from the top minds in the liberty movement. If you want liberty, we need to be better leaders, better husbands, better fathers, better friends, better businessmen. We need to be better people. Here's your host, your guide, your shining beacon of liberty, Mark Clare. I am here. My guest today is the one and only, as far as I know, James Corbett of the Corbett Report. He is returning uh, to this program after uh, several years off. And uh, it's been been a crazy couple of years, I guess, since the last time you've been on, James. But before we get into all that stuff, I have to first confirm that you are still ready to roar. Oh, right. Yeah. You know, I was just thinking about this and I thought, you know, I know I did this the last time I was on your show, but I know a lot of people won't remember that. So I'll just once again observe that in Japan, lions do not roar, they gowl. Yes, I remember this well. So I can give you a good hearty gowl for my roar. Indeed. All right. We will, we will absolutely accept that. And uh, you you gave your whole story about how you uh, ended up living in Japan when you were on the show a couple of years ago. So I'll, I'll link to that in the show notes. So uh, if anyone has interest in that, which you should, it's a fascinating story. Go over to the show notes after this. Check that out. But first, we're going to talk a little bit more about the, uh, the more immediate times, at least the past couple of years, because uh, I'm just really kind of curious from your perspective uh, how things were in Japan. Obviously, we know like they canceled the Olympics and, and all that stuff. Uh, but what was it like for you, especially someone having living in lived in Asia? for some time and also you know you being someone who's written about medical tyranny for a long time i'm just kind of curious what when did your gut instincts or just your, your knowledge start kind of cluing you in that this was more than just um sort of our standard you know next latest flu scare that kind of right. just fades away after a few yeah months. yeah yeah because that was very much the mindset that i was in um as soon as this story appeared on my radar i think in december of 2019 at any rate in january the very first thing, my first instinct was, oh, here we go again. It's going to be swine flu, Zika, uh, whatever, you know, the Ebola. Remember Ebola? Every, it's coming to get you guys. Yeah. Um, so I, I feel would, like I've been so conditioned over the years to not care when I heard this stuff exactly. that I just was doing the that same thing. That was very like, much oh, my mindset these, because whatever. if people go back into my archives, they can see I have covered this over and over. And I really do think the swine flu pandemic, so, so-called of 2009, really was sort of the test for this operation, not coincidentally coming three years after the signing of the international health regulations, the international treaty, giving the world health organization, the a power to declare a public health emergency of international concern, a PHEIC, which gives them all sorts of powers and automatically springs into action, all sorts of contracts with big pharma distributors of lovely, wonderful, efficacious medic medicines. And Here's the thing. How fortunate for all of us. Um, so, and I remember covering all of that at the time. The fact that ultimately the swine flu 2009 season turned out to be a less deadly flu season than most flu seasons. Um, but it was declared a pandemic on the back of the World Health Organization, changing, literally changing their definition of international pandemic 
Um, it, just months before they used that to declare uh, this is a pandemic. It used to actually include mm. a specification that it had to involve large numbers of deaths. They removed that. So now it's just, well, anything that's spreading in multiple countries. And hey, look, this swine flu is spreading in multiple countries. So anyway, it was, it was a scam. But the worst part of it was the follow-up, which very few people paid attention to. The Council of Europe and others did an investigation and found, lo and behold, who would have thunk it? The very people that were on the special advisory board that called for the WHO, that ultimately recommended the WHO call for an international pandemic, implement that PHEIC, all had, or the majority of them had ties to big pharma manufacturers who ultimately ended up gaining billions and billions of dollars out of the whole debacle. Um, they were trying to ring the alarm bell about this at the time. People like Wolfgang Wodarg, who has come up over the past couple of years, but I remember him from a decade plus ago when he was trying to tell people, hey, this was a big scam that they pulled here, but didn't learn the lessons. So you're exactly right. That was my entire mindset when I saw this first developing. I think the, the real moment where I went, oh, shit, here we go, was probably um, when they canceled the NBA season. Because then I, I knew, oh, they're, they're pulling the trigger on this. They don't do that lightly, right? So I, that's when I started to shift my thinking. And, and people can listen to my coverage around that time and having conversations. Is this the next 9-11 kind of thing, that kind of conversation? Well, it didn't take very long to figure out, yes, that's exactly where this is going. And I think I, I certainly stand by the work that I've done on this topic since the, the very beginning. Um, ever, unfortunately, unfortunately, I truly wish this were not the case, but unfortunately, Everything I was talking about at, at the beginning of this is exactly what is coming to pass. And um, again, people, please, if you don't, if you don't, if you didn't see it, please go back and rewatch some of those early episodes I was doing on Corona World Order and other such things. It's absolutely happening. Unfortunately, like the nightmare, the vaccine passports and everything beyond that, I remember saying specifically stressing the point every single year for the rest of your life, they're going to give you these updates. Oh, there's a new strain developing in madagascar or you know zimbabwe or wherever and uh-oh now the whole world has to lock down i remember stressing that point and here we go oh omicron exactly zero people have died from this horrible new variant ah we better all lock down the world again it's um insanity it's predictable insanity every part of this lines up exactly with the medical martial law agenda that i was documenting 12 13 years ago the only thing that has surprised me, the only thing that has surprised me about all of this is how quickly and how unquestioningly the vast majority of the public seems to have swallowed this. Although I always stress we shouldn't simply believe what we see on the TV. Oh, look, everyone's going along with this. I think there is a vast amount of resistance to this that we're not being shown. But still, I'm sure we all know people in our daily lives who did buy into this hook, line, and sinker. What, what was it like on the ground in Japan then? Was it, is it, I mean, I, I know that is a culture that is, well, I, I'll let you speak on the culture because you know a lot more than that. I know like the, what's, you know, what you hear on TV or whatever. So I'll let you speak on what the culture is really like. So how did the culture of Japan react to this? And I'm not exactly sure what the situation was in Japan as, tar as, for, as far as lockdowns and that sort of thing. So maybe you can delve into sure. that a bit as well. So um, actually that was one of the, uh, the moments where I really started to see where this was going was that I was in February of 2020. I was heading to Mexico for a Narcopoco and uh, it was when I got to the airport and I started seeing foreigners in masks that I realized, oh, something, you know, they're really pushing us. They're going for it. Oh, I, I've, I'm supposed to be scared of this. Right. Yeah. Um, because, of course, it's Japan. People wear masks here all the time. Um, a fever season, colds, whatever people will put on a mask. It is certainly nothing new to the culture here. But was, when I saw the, where does that come, where does that come from in the culture? I mean, is it just they have a history of, yeah. of disease sweeping through? And I don't just, know. I've only been here 17 years. In the 17 years I've been here, it's pretty common. You, you will see people wearing masks all the time in different places, obviously more in cold and flu season and that kind of thing. Um, but obviously nothing like what we see now. So that has been one of the things that obviously has just completely pervaded the culture here is mask wearing at this point is 99.9% .9 of the people, 99.9% .9 of the time. You might see a maskless person here and there, but pretty much everyone's masked up all the time. Um, but having said that, there are, I, I don't believe there are any actual legal mandates about that. Um, certainly on buses and trains and things, they do try to enforce it and tell you to put on the mask and certain stores might 
every store has the sign up, you know, please put on your mask. But I've, I've seen two or three that actually tried to enforce it. So, um, so it's not, it's not a cultural issue here in that sense. In fact, it wasn't even until I think September or October of 2020 that I started to notice the just ubiquitous mask compliance. There was more mask wearing going on, obviously, in the first few months, but it wasn't until September, October that it became just constant blanket coverage all the time. Um, having said that, lockdown wise, I am extremely, I have been extremely fortunate so far um, to live in Japan because there have been no lockdowns on the, uh, of the sort that we're seeing implemented elsewhere. There have been emergency, uh, what do they call them? Emergency situations, whatever, um, that initially had literally zero legal ramification to them at all. It was just government saying, can you, can you guys please close your businesses early, earlier at night kind of thing? Um, and it wasn't until February of this year, I want to say, that there was actually some legal teeth put into them so that the prefectural governments can actually uh, implement fines if a business does not comply with, you know, closing their doors early or something like that. But throughout this whole thing, the only thing that it affected, at some point, eateries were closing earlier at 8 p.m., uh, because, of course, we know that's when the virus comes out to kill. Right. And uh, and uh, they were asked to stop serving alcohol. But all of those restrictions, as far as I know, all well, it them, rides on the alcohol as well. Yeah, so exactly. That, that of course, sense. you know, because they they like to get drunk, too. Um, yeah. So other than that, uh, those those and th- that was voluntary compliance. It was, again, since this is a very compliant society in most ways most compliance but there was one and i did document this if people want the real kind of deep dive on this i've done a couple of uh, editions of my questions for corbett series where i was talking specifically about japan and how it's re- been reacting and uh, going through all that and there was one eatery chain um that i'm not familiar with in my part of japan maybe it's in more in the tokyo area but um that was actually legally challenging that and i don't know the status of their legal challenge but anyway there was some amount of kickback against that but there have been no vaccine mandates um, no, no lockdowns of any real, um, uh, sense. So it, it, it's been extremely light here in Japan, which is surprising to me to some extent, maybe not because part of the fact that Japan is generally such a compliant society is that they generally don't need to mandate and le- use legal teeth mm-hmm. to a lot of these restrictions. They just ask and most people comply. So I guess they can be the, the kind overlords tyrants you know just asking people to comply and if they get it nice they get lockdowns it. right right um you talked about earlier about you know, how you you saw this coming and you've been doing this research um for quite some time so that when you st- started to see these signs you knew where this was all going um which implies that this is planned in not some way in a way in, in an entire way i guess um so I, I guess if it's being planned then the next logical questions are and this is you know whenever whenever you mention anything like like there's a plan around this then people start to yell conspiracy theorists that's crazy stuff but you do re- you, you do your research that's why you're who i wanted to have to talk yeah. about this stuff so based on your research and what you've discovered over the years who are the people behind these plans and and what is the purpose of it? Okay. Well, first of all, I will just absolutely address that square on the nose because anyone at this point in the year 2021 who gets squeamish about the idea that this could be a conspiracy, I'm not going to listen to a conspiracy theorist. I, I can't imagine why you're even listening to this conversation. Go, go enjoy your life. I mean, but (laughs) but I won't, I won't ward people off your podcast. I will simply address you directly to say, okay, Whatever. Do I have the signed and sealed document? You know, here's Bill Gates in his own blood, you know, signing the order to release the bioweb. Of course, I don't have that level of proof, and I don't think that will ever be forthcoming. But I will put it this way. It, in some sense, it does not matter whether this whole pandemic is real or, or a scamdemic or whether it's uh, 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 whether it was planned or not planned. In a sense, it doesn't matter. It is the excuse to trigger all of the pieces of legislative infrastructure that were laid over the last 20 plus years that led me to understand exactly the way this was going to play out and why I I know what this is going to be, even before we saw any of the specifics about, you know, the the supposed genetic sequence of this thing that they're sequencing through these PCR tests and whatever. It doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter in that sense, because this this is not about that. It's about the legislative 
sort of the preparation for this that's been going on for decades. So I mentioned earlier the 2000, I believe it was a 2005 treaty, and I believe it was ratified in 2006. I could be off on the years. I did an entire episode about this called What is the Who? Another edition of my questions for Corbett that people can look up where I have all the documents and things. Um, But essentially in 2005-06, the WHO signed the International Health Regulations, which was really the first global health treaty that was um, signed by every signatory to the World Health Organization, which is almost every nation on Earth. I think there is a couple of uh, countries that aren't signatories, but essentially every nation on Earth. And it was that treaty that uh, allowed the WHO to, well, it created this new category, the Public Health Emergency of International Concern, which gives the WHO specific powers up to and including the ability to um, call on the UN to send troops into countries that are not cooperating with whatever they think is necessary for health emergencies. That, obviously, that trigger has not been pulled yet, but it actually exists legislatively. So, we could look forward to that in the future, um, especially actually given the fact that uh, uh, Bill Gates has gone around talking about how what we need pandemic emergency teams that will spring into action anytime there's some new variant and they'll they'll be able to be deployed anywhere in the world instantaneously and they can go in and start locking down and testing and all of that. Um, and now what is breaking in the news just this past week Now the World Health Organization has started the ball rolling on the process to form an agreement to create a global uh, pandemic treaty. Um, And that's going to be a years long process, but it is already in motion. And I think this is just going to further build on that, um, that, that, uh, that energy, the, the inertia from the 2005 push. But that's just that, that, I mean, that's the global level of this, but for example, in the U.S. specifically, you can look at um, the, the various types of uh, legislation that was passed in the wake of the anthrax attacks, because we all remember the anthrax attacks, right? And the powder in the mail and people freaking out and we need to, won't the government do something about this? Oh, don't worry. They did something about this. They created a uh, legislative template, essentially, um, that I'm going to, it's the, the name of this is going to escape my my uh, uh, memory at the moment. But anyway, again, people can look it up. I believe I did reference it in that What is the Who podcast. And uh, that legislative template was a, uh, it gave the sort of laundry list of everything. Oh, the governor can create, declare an emergency, which will allow him to implement quarantines, will allow forced vaccination, this sort of thing. All of this was put in this template and then each state implemented it um, individually. And the last time I checked, I think something like 40 plus states had passed ultimately some version of this template legislation that was passed around in the wake of anthrax. Also in the wake of anthrax, you had the creation of new offices, um, uh, one called the A- ASDR. And I'm going to forget, I'm going to forget all of the details of this speaking extemporaneously like this. But again, people can look this up. There was a new office created under the DHS that, um, uh, uh, created essentially this this team that's going to figure out what to do in the event of a pandemic. Now, one of the people who helped to create that that position, which ultimately went on to become one of the key um, point men in the Trump administration and now the Biden administration for the, the pandemic response, was a guy named Robert Cadlick, who just happened to be a participant in the dark winter exercise of 2001. What is dark winter? This was an exercise that was uh, that was performed uh, a few months before the anthrax attacks that predict that was looking at the possibility. What if terrorists, because we know these international terrorists are everywhere. Remember, this is pre 9-11. These international terrorists, what if they got their hands on smallpox and started spreading it in the US? What will we do? And they war gamed it out. Um, they actually created fake news spots about this so that they could play during the exercise. And you can go and watch those uh, fake news spots. Uh, I believe they're still up on YouTube. Anyway, I'm sure they've been, I hope by this point, they've been preserved elsewhere online. Um, but uh, you, it, this like, you know, breaking this smallpox pandemic is spreading. And now it's, you know, in Alabama and they're closing the borders and blah, blah, blah. Um, one, uh, Robert Cadillac was one of the participants in that exercise who, in fact, in the script of that exercise, actually is the one who names it. This could be a very dark winter, which, of course, gives the name to the exercise itself. He goes on to create this position um, that would 
be the coordinating response position for pandemic crises. And then uh, when the actual, you know, as we approach, oh my God, COVID is hitting, guess who's in that position? Robert Cadlick. Um, he's one of these names that keeps popping up in this space. And there's a few of those that are, are well-connected to a, different, a lot of different parts of this agenda. If people are interested in the real deep dive on that, I would suggest they go to Whitney Webb's work at unlimitedhangout.com. She had a whole series about Dark Winter where she traced the various people who were populating these different positions and, and the types of exercises that they were doing and the positions they were creating. For example, I'm sure everyone's heard about Event 201 by now, right? The October 2019 simulation of a globally spreading coronavirus pandemic. What will we do? Um, but there's many, many other examples of that. There was uh, something called Crimson Contagion, which I believe Cadillac was in charge of. Uh, there was a uh, SPARS pandemic. Um, there was, uh, oh, I'm going to, uh, Clade X. There was a number of these different exercises that have been done in recent years. And every single time they're swirling around the same issues. Oh, you know, there's, there's all this fake misinformation spreading around about this this pandemic. So what will we do about it? Oh, we better start cracking down. We better have the censorship plans in place or, um, oh, oh, you know, there's resistance to the, to the vaccines. What will we do about that? They've been wargaming this out over and over and over year after year after year. So you don't have to, you don't have to know or care whether this was a planned conspiracy. This particular instantiation of COVID-19 was some sort of planned conspiracy event because it is just the it's, it follows the exact template that they've been showing you is exactly what they're going to do. This is how they're going to roll it out. This is the response. These are the issues that they're going to try to stress. So again, you don't have to, you don't have to imagine anything. Just go and read their documents to see what they've been talking about. And on those lines, one that was particularly, I think, interesting was one called uh, Operation Lockstep, which was part of a, uh, a series of scenarios that... Uh, was uh, being funded or under the auspices of the Rockefeller Foundation, but there were um, other players involved in this. But it was a, a scenario of these are different ways that the future can go. And one of them was, well, you know, in the year or whatever it was, they imagined 2020 or whatever it was, um, there's going to be some sort of international pandemic, and this is the way it will develop. And they start talking uh, in that Operation Lockstep, Lockstep, which you can, again, read the document online. Um, they start talking about, they're going to have to lock down various populations and there's going to be a mass uprising of people against this. And we're going to have this, uh, this sort of um, war of citizens against their governments. And it's going to be a time of chaos and all of this I, again, they they've war game this out over and over and over. So we don't have to imagine, you know, what if, what if this was all created in, in whatever sense, real or fake, it is the, the template for the time we are living through has already been written. That's why we don't have to speculate about what they're trying to do here. Right, because either way, whether it was some kind of planned release or something like that, whether it's entirely made up, this this response has been out there and what they've been doing their little, you know, Dungeons and Dragons role playing uh, with, with for like pandemic role playing with for the last 20 years or so. Um, so I guess that kind of begs the question then, like, what is the purpose? Because I think anybody who really analyzes this in any just even a, a remotely uh, <clears throat> thin way can see that this is obviously not about health. It's not about uh, protecting the people of the world from a pandemic in, in the proper way, or maybe for some people it is for some, maybe for certain players along the way that are just in it, but that's clearly not the overall purpose of the response. So what is the overall purpose of that response and who stands to benefit from it? Yeah. Well, this is, this is the, the trillion dollar question. This is the, this is the game for all the marbles. And this is where my disappointment in a lot of the Liberty space has been for years is that again, people don't want to touch that crazy conspiracy theorist stuff. So no, we don't do that. No, the people who are constantly and consistently trying to take away your freedoms are just doing so because they're misguided they're misinformed or, you know, they're they're just dumb liberals or whatever it is. Oh, they don't get it. It cannot possibly be because there is a coordinated agenda amongst a clique of people who literally want to control the world, literally control the population of the world. No, that's crazy conspiracy theorizing, except for the fact that it has demonstrably been the case throughout every era of human history that various oligarchs have worked in conjunction, sometimes warring against each other, sometimes cooperating to try to extend their power and wealth 
as much as possible throughout as much of the world as possible. We can see that when we study history over and over and over again. But for some reason, no, in our era, no, no one wants to actually form control of. Obviously, I think people can see where I stand on that issue. I think that exactly as in any other era of history, there is an oligarchy that is operating right now that does seek to control the human population. And I mean that population control in every sense of that word. Of course, we have been, I think, in the last few decades, we have come to know that term population control specifically in the literal sense of trying to control the numbers of people. Uh, in some sense. Oh, we don't want this overpopulation. Oh, it's where we're polluting the earth with too many people, which is another entire scam that I have thoroughly debunked time and time again. People can look at my work, for example, on Paul Ehrlich, um, pseudoscience charlatan, I believe was the name of the, uh, the episode, just type Ehrlich into my search bar and they'll find and that's one episode. that's like, it's almost generally accepted across all political spheres. Like no matter what your beliefs about the response, a lot, I find a lot of people I know that you might not expect just kind of buy into, well, yeah, we know the earth is overpopulated, but you know, yeah, blah, blah, blah. It is absolutely might, taken for granted in any conversation you will have with anyone you meet from any political position, it is interesting to see that phenomenon, especially when you point out, you know, Malthus was saying this 200 plus years ago and every (laughs) single generation since, oh my God, the population is growing exponentially. Food is growing arithmetically. We're going to die in 20 years. 20 years later, we're going to die in 20 years. 20 years later, we're going to die. Every just 20 years early on it, but it's coming. Oh, yeah, exactly. Oh, yeah. Okay. It's been wrong every single generation since then, but it's right this time. And Ehrlich, of course, was predicting the exact same things back in the 60s and 70s, the population bomb. By the year 2000, the UK is going to have so many people, you know, 10 million people or whatever, because they're all going to starve and freeze and all of this, all of it completely wrong. Yet he's still heralded as this great uh, sage. Anyway, the point is, I don't just mean it in that population control sense of trying to control the numbers of people on the planet, although that is clearly and demonstrably still a driving concern of many of the people who actually are in seats of of power and control in this particular pandemic response. Numero uno example, of course, Bill Gates, who we all know, we've all seen that clip decontextualized and oh you don't get what he was really saying and blah 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 I have had so many people try to tell me well no what he really means is making a healthier society and then that healthier society has less yeah. is like what are you what? I, I look I I actually address that specifically in my uh, Bill Gates documentary um, corporatereport.com slash Gates a two-hour documentary I did last year about Bill Gates and his role in the global health space generally um, and I did address that directly yes what he is referring to, at least theoretically, is this idea popularized by Rosling, I want to say. Is that right? Um, that, yes, if you if you improve health care for, um, for people and they, their children are more likely to survive into adulthood, then parents will have less children. So it will actually bring the population down to improve people's health. That's all he means by that. Okay, whatever. Anyway, the point is the underlying driving concern is, of course, this this magical number of the number of human beings that should be allowed to live on this planet. Right. Um, and, uh, I've, again, I've addressed that in, in great detail, but I, I think it isn't just that aspect of population control. It is literally controlling the human population. And unfortunately this gets really dark really quickly. When you start to look at some of the things that are being done now, technologically, that wouldn't have been possible in the wildest imagination of an Orwell or Huxley of a previous age. Uh, in terms of what is being referred to as the great convergence, um, the convergence of biology and technology that we're going to start merging essentially with machines or um, incorporating various uh, technologies into our body, the little nanobots that will clean your blood stream and all of this stuff that is going to start transforming what it is that we mean by human being. And again, I know sounds absolutely pie in the sky crazy when it's some loon in Japan. You know, what does this guy know about this? Don't listen to me. Some, some Canadian in Japan I'm supposed to listen to about this? Like, yeah, exactly, exactly, exactly. 
But don't listen to me. Listen to someone like a Klaus Schwab, who, of course, we all know is the, the person who's coming to deliver us from all of these problems, who literally a few years ago is talking about, yeah, in 2016, you can go and watch him talking on French television about, oh, you know, of course, we're developing the uh, brain chips are being developed. And, you know, if, if, if we're going to start implanting technologies in our skin and eventually we'll have the brain chip by 2026 in, in 10 years. Uh, most people will be walking around with a range. I'm not the one saying this. The person who's writing the book on literally writing the book on the fourth industrial revolution and talking about how our biological and digital identities are going to merge is the one talking about this. And this is a, uh, not just some fringe wackadoodle lunatic on, you know, that no one listens to. This is someone in a central position of very interesting power that is wielded uh, on a global stage who has obvious access to uh, incredible degrees, not only of capital, but also of of political capital, if you will. Um, This is a real idea that's coming. And I've tried to stress this, that I really think, I mean, the extinction of Homo sapiens as we have known it is on the table when we start transforming through genetic manipulation and nanotechnologies and all of this stuff. This is the level of population control that is being actively, openly talked about at this point by the Klaus Schwab's and other people like that. They openly write books about this, talk about it. And yet, if I even bring this up, you know, I'm the crazy loon. Oh, you think people are trying to control the world? Oh, you're crazy. It's a mental illness at some point that people, and I get it, because the funny thing is people will always try to psychopathologize the conspiracy theorists. Oh, it's just so much more comfortable for you to think that it's all controlled by someone. <laughs> I never Meanwhile, understood that one. It's so much more uncomfortable for me to think that this is a de- like the, there is so much evil in the world. Exactly. That people would do I mean, this. the point is actually <laughs> it's so much more comfortable to think, no, it's just a bunch of random stuff. No one's trying totally. to control anything. No one's got an agenda that's I would you much know, rather think or, it's just a bunch of idiots messing up. It's just over a bunch of idiots. Just kind of, <laughs> rolling around like pinballs and who knows whatever it'll all work out just don't worry about it james <laughs> um you mentioned klaus schwab there and I, that's one name that obviously comes up a lot uh, with good reason since he literally wrote like a book and started a podcast about the great great reset um do, can you tell us much about who he is like who he really is like mm-hmm. how he came into power why he be, became i only started hearing about him in the last couple of years yeah. uh, in, in relation to the great reset stuff but yeah. like where does this super villain guy come from and i say that because yeah. Out, he literally wears outfits and he must be doing this on purpose. It almost seems like to, to actually look and appear and come across as a supervillain. It's, it's almost I, I know, I, exactly. If you went to central casting and said, can you get <laughs> us a bond supervillain? Oh, here he is. Like, I mean, it's just, it's crazy. The optics of it are crazy. And actually even the way they edit the world economic forum itself edits. Some of their videos is unhinged it's madness where they they film him from like he's up on some stage and they film him from some low angle and then they'll suddenly in the middle of a sentence like jump to like this real close-up and (laughs) it's just it's just madness you couldn't plan it to look any crazier than it does but anyway here we are um yeah it's a very good question because i yeah i've vaguely known about schwab and the world economic forum and davos of course but it's never been sort of central to the conversation until the last couple of years. So uh, as for Schwab's personal family background, the best deep dive I've seen into that was uh, done by uh, Johnny Vedmore at unlimitedhangout.com. And I can't remember, I think it was Schwab Family Values was the name of the article. Anyway, people can look that up, um, where he went into the deep dive of the family and where it came from and its wealth. And I've seen some other attempts to do that. And some people with, I think, some spurious and data that doesn't actually um, pan out in reality about where this family comes from and whatever. At any rate, what we can documentably and verifiably show, I went over in a podcast uh, entitled Meet the World Economic Forum, I believe was the name of the podcast. And I I go through the, uh, the founding charter of the World Economic Forum and the documents that actually make it a hereditary familial organization for the Schwabs. There's actually in the in the articles of uh, the the, uh, the the forum, it actually stipulates that Schwab or one of his heirs will be uh, uh, on the board at all times. So at any rate, there's uh, it's this organization that sprung up in the 1970s somehow. And there's some obvious interesting shenanigans around that, that uh, is seeking to bring this idea of stakeholder capitalism to the fore, because this is one of this has been one of Schwab's bandwagons for a long time. And it sounds so wonderful and touchy-feely good to most 
um, good brainwashed statists out there who have been trained to think that ultimately the government and sure, why not? A combination of government and private entities will steward over us nicely if we create the right structure for that. And what's the right structure? Well, we shouldn't look at capitalism. You know, uh, capitalism is bad. It's all these greedy people going after their own self-interest. What we need is stakeholder capitalism. So everyone has a stake in whatever this particular corporation or something is doing in a a given area or using a certain resource. Well, every person who has a stake in that area or in that resource has a stake thereby in what is being done. So what we need is to think of on a broader scale, not just a, a corporation isn't just beholden to shareholders, they're beholden to stakeholders, everyone who has a... So what we need is some sort of forum to act as the intermediary to settle and arbitrate all these disputes and create the guidelines and rules and the international bureaucratic framework through which this system can give rise. Who could possibly do? Oh, I know. How about the World Economic Forum? Yay. So we're already here waiting for us. Exactly. And they're the ones spearheading all this stuff, this buzzwordy stuff that you're starting to hear about. um, Oh, God, what is it? Not ESR. uh, Environmental, social and blah whatever esg environmental social and governance whatever it is uh, there's all these uh, rubrics and and systems and and regulations and things that are coming into view right now that the world economic forum is trying to situate itself uh, as the arbiter of we're going to be the ones hashing this out so um so I, there's an obvious self-interest there for the organization to try to uh, essentially forward its vision for a great reset. And I I have a feeling the great reset in all of this, again, regardless of whatever has happened over the past couple of years and whoever was behind it or not behind it, I think the the World Economic Forum is ready to go with a lot of uh, all of this. This is just branding that they're putting on top of this. It's like, yeah, there's this spreading pandemic, coronavirus pandemic. Therefore, we need to reimagine capitalism and rewrite the social contract and all of like, what? What What are you talking about? Where did this come from? I I tend to think it was already on the table, ready to go. Um, But that's the way I understand essentially this and the World Economics Forum role in it is this is a this is an advertising, a marketing campaign um, that ultimately is marketing the World Economic Forum itself. It, you know, this is such an important organization and blah, blah, blah. So I, I, I certainly don't want people to come away from my work thinking that I think that Klaus Schwab runs the world and the World Economic Forum is the organization that really is secretly pulling the strings or something. Of course not. That's childish cartoon nonsense. The real power structure of the world is a multivariate, um, uh, de- not decentralized, but oligarchical structure it's not a singular there's one person or one family or one group that rules the world there are competing power factions of course um they're just not the power factions that we at the lowest level of the propaganda ladder are given um to as the you know the shadows on the cave wall to jeer or cheer at you know oh that politician did this today that politician did that today these are the the sideshow distraction that's meant to distract us from the real centers of power which is embodied in organizations like the World Economic Forum and many others that people might be more or less familiar with. But these are just bodies where people with this type of transnational power can congregate to hash out various agendas. And as I say, there are competing power factions within this. I don't think it's a singular monolithic agenda, but I think there is a singular ideology that essentially unites all of this, which is the ideology that we need to rend order from this chaos. We need control over the human population. That is, I think, the driving ideology of the oligarchy. And it is so alien, I think, to the average man and woman. I do not want control over your life, Mark. I, I don't want to tell you what to do. I don't want to be your your uh, your your authority figure to to direct you. And I don't claim to know what's best for your life. I couldn't even imagine that mindset, but it's that lack of imagination that leaves us, unfortunately, generally helpless against these predators, which is essentially what the oligarchical class is, predators that are preying on us. And if we don't even, if we can't even imagine that there are predators 
then we're probably going to be on their dinner table. Yeah, I mean, if you're a gazelle in Africa, you could imagine there's no lions out there, but it's it's not going to really help. Um, I, I always think to myself when I when we talk about these guys like, you know, Bill Gates or uh, Klaus Schwab, that it's like, OK, if, if I even know about these guys and know what they're talking about, that they're very openly talking about, uh, they can't they're they can't even be yeah. like the real yeah. power. You know, they're they're They seem like they're the PR. They're the guys Completely. that go on TV. Yeah. And, and we've even seen that to some extent with Gates over this course of this year. Um, they haven't quite thrown him under the bus yet, but he certainly mm-hmm. does not have the role that he was playing. He got a demotion year. of some kind, for sure. Yeah, the divorce and all that. And OK, well, you know, they, they, they've distanced themselves. I, again, I do not think Gates controls everything. I do not think Schwab controls everything. I don't think it comes down to that level of cartoon politics. Um, these people are expendable. Uh, any individual, I think, uh, certainly, as you say, the ones that we know the names of uh, and that appear on our TV screens are expendable to some extent. Um, they might not want to. Throw I mean, if you have to get up and go on TV, you're probably not the one that's really in power. Like that guy's not getting yeah. going on TV. Yeah, yeah. He's, he's, exactly. He knows what he's doing. I, I did. I, I did see a uh, I can't remember which Rothschild it was, but a Rothschild uh, being interviewed on Bloomberg a decade plus ago about about China and uh, or. Was it about weather? Anyway, <laughs> at any rate, uh, it was funny to watch the interaction, the obsequious nature of the interviewer. Oh, Mr. Lord Rothschild. Oh, thank you for coming on our program. <laughs> it's one of those moments where you start to see, uh, you know, I think there might be something deeper to this, uh, this uh, media agenda. All right, gang, got to take one quick break to tell you about our amazing Wonderful friends and supporters over at Lorenzotti Italy. Lorenzotti Italy is the number one place for you to stop and order some fine premium Italian coffees delivered right to your door in these neat little tins. And if that wasn't enough, you get to do so knowing you're helping a sponsor of this program. And if that weren't enough, you get to order using your Lions of Liberty discount code. That discount code is ROAR, and it gets you 10% off your order. So head on over to Lorenzotti.coffee and use discount code ROAR for 10% off some frying premium Italian coffees. Mm-mm-mm. Yummy, yummy, yummy. I mean, when you you talk about like the Rothschilds, like families that have have had power for a long time or have had a tremendous amount of wealth. And in many ways, you think about, you know, these last maybe this last century is like an exception in in some ways, or maybe the marketing has just been better. But really, this seems like they're just trying to return to the norm of feudalism of what, what was basically what society always had until now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because this is the way I've always envisioned it Uh, several hundred years ago. There was no conspiracy theory about the people trying to control your life because it was absolutely blatantly obvious and in your face. Yeah, that guy living on the hill in the castle with all the you know knights right. and guards and everything. And he sends these guys with swords over and they threaten us yeah. and we comply. And we have to give over our, you know, a quarter of our crop every year or whatever. Yeah, I mean, it was pretty obvious. There was no hiding. But it's an incredibly sophisticated system of manipulation that has been... I don't know whether it's been deliberately crafted or through an evolutionary process. Hey, this works better. It's like the matrix. They keep resetting it to make it a little bit more refined in its control so that people want to to plug into the matrix. I like this. Um, And and I think that's the system of control. Yeah. Now it's not like that. Well, actually, it still is, but we're not allowed to talk about it. Of course, they fly around the world to these meetings to tell us how we shouldn't be flying around the world and other such things, other obvious hypocrisies. But it isn't quite as obvious as before. And certainly the guys wearing the suits and, uh, you know, just talking nice about the environment and things. Well, why are you so against them, James? Um, there has been that sort of shift that's taken place. But I, I, I note, um, I'm just right now reading uh, the, the Square in the Tower by Niall Ferguson, who is um, fairly, I mean, I don't know how to describe it. He's a mainstream author, but he certainly goes towards the fringes of what is acceptable to talk about on the mainstream. But because he does that, he has to all the more doubly, triply distance himself from those crazy conspiracy theorists. So the, the, the sort of central thesis of the square in the tower is the tower in the square, the square in the tower uh, is talking about networks of power rather than hierarchies of power. 
and how that has developed over the years. So he's talking about the Illuminati and the Freemasons and the Rothschilds and all of this and constantly saying, oh, you know, the conspiracy theorists say this, but in actuality, and, and then he'll go on to essentially say, but here's what's really happening. They go and meet and they plan and you're like, yeah. Well, well eventually <laughs> he, he essentially goes on to say exactly what the conspiracy theorists would say anyway. He's like, right. well, actually the Rothschilds did, of course, wield <laughs> unbelievable amounts of power over every principality <laughs> on, in Europe at that time. But yeah, that, that, I don't know. It's just funny to Way that but it's crazy to think of something sinister behind this. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But yeah, but we're asked to believe that just somehow in the 20th century, all of that incredible power, wealth, and influence, unimaginable of the, the Rothschilds and the Rockefellers and all these all these names that were clearly uh, had direct control over a lot of uh, governments, national governments, and other such things at that time, international finance, just kind of went away. I don't know. They dissolved into some sort of corporate network. And now it's just corporations that run the world in some sort of amorphous way. But I think you're right. I think if anything, this whole great reset transition, whatever we're going through is to put neo-feudalism back on the table. And at some point, I think so that it will be safe once again for the, you know, the king to live in the castle on the hill and to lord it over the peasants. I mean, I, I think there is some sort of return to feudal society that is that is happening before our eyes. And the worst part is people are being made to want that to happen. Yes, I must suffer for my carbon sins against Mother Nature. I am the one who breathing out and driving my car to work every day is killing the planet. So we need the carbon ration cards and, you know, we need this, these lockdowns for the environment and all of this that's being sold to us. Meanwhile, as I've been covering recently, the green financial scam uh, continues unabated. In fact, is growing by the day. Now they're up to $120, $130 trillion in commitments that have been made to this new financial um, green swindle that is going on right now that's going to be stewarded over by these new bodies that are being created by people like Mark Carney, the old Bank of Canada slash Bank of England governor who's now at the UN as some sort of climate finance guru. And like, what? What is happening here? It's it's the exact same swindles are being perpetuated on the human species, as has always been perpetuated by oligarchs. But this time it's in the name of saving Mother Earth. And people will cling to that with all of their might and all of their identity so that when I, someone like myself, comes along and says, hey, I think this is a scam. I think you're being played. Oh, you hate you hate nature, James. You don't understand. Oh, you're a horrible. You must be a big oil shill. <laughs> Wait, I did an entire documentary about how big oil conquered the world and then why big oil conquered the world, showing exactly the the point that yes, big all the oil, big oil companies have their green initiatives now too. So yeah, <laughs> it's, it's still the same guys. They're just chilling for them now. Yeah. Um, uh, one thing I want to talk to you about, you know, speaking of you know neo feudalism, I mean, maybe in the the feudal days you were unhappy with the king and you want to speak out against the king you i don't know maybe you go to the town square or something and the king sends some guys and takes you off to a dungeon or something but you know nowadays if you speak out and and you mentioned this earlier that's part of their their war gaming plan with this stuff there's going to be misinformation so we're going to obviously have to do something about that misinformation and uh you were actually recently a victim of this exact thing uh when you were removed from youtube now we're we're still on youtube we got a couple strikes right now we've been demonetized long ago so we, we never ended up making much on YouTube anyway, because we start most of our growth came after that demonetization. Um, but for you, I, I imagine that was actually a significant, a significant hit. So I just want you no. to maybe talk about. No, it was not. No, because okay. well, I good. never, I'm glad ever, 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 ever wanted any of that filthy Google lucre because well, I then, knew. Well, then that's a good part. of it. I, yes. I never built around that. In fact, I am proud of the fact I never got a single penny from my YouTube channel. Never once. All right. And who knows how much money I left on the table. I don't think about it because I don't want that. I didn't want to structure what I was doing around it. And I did have some of my alt media colleagues. I mean, it turns out that was smart, you know, because that, that it would have been swept away. In the long run, it paid off. Hey, imagine that having principles can pay off. Um, but yeah, I, and I did get from some of my alt media colleagues like, what are you doing? Like, think of all that money you're just leaving out there. And I just didn't want to structure what I was doing around it. My entire principle has always been and I know it's counterintuitive and it makes no sense, but put it everything out there 100% for free and ask people to support it. And that's worked for me. I realize that's not going to work for everyone in every situation. Anyway, I'm here still doing this as a full-time uh, career because people are willing to support me in the work that I do. So I am absolutely blessed and humbled by that. Um, but 
That also means that I never wanted advertising. I never wanted to accept any money from that. So financially, it has not been a hit at all. But of course, in terms of having reach, having influence, having an ability to help change the, the discourse, it certainly, I mean, I don't like to think about it or dwell on it, but obviously the days of me releasing a documentary that will be seen by millions of people is done. Uh, my Bill Gates documentary had over a million views, but that was probably the last one. And uh, I can't imagine, at least not in the near term, I do post, uh, of course, to Odyssey, to Minds.com, to BitChute, to Archive.org. But none of those platforms at this point are going to be hosting million plus viral view videos. So I have consigned myself to that. But I I think we are in a period of consolidation. Um, I I was keenly aware in 2007 when I started the website. Part of the reason I started the website is because, hey, we are in the Internet era. Things are happening, you know. Whatever, Loose Change Documentary just became the most viral video of all time, hundreds of millions of views and whatever. All of this stuff was happening. It was so exciting. So I wanted to be part of that and to put my voice out there and reach as many people as possible. And I I thought of it in that context of reaching into the matrix to pull people out of it. So, okay, Mm -hmm. I would never in a million years sign up for a YouTube account. But here I am signing up for a YouTube account because I know it is the way to reach people. So that was that was essentially the first part of what I guess is has become my mission if i have a mission per se it was to reach out as widely as possible to cast that net to to get this information to as many people as possible but i think this is the time of consolidation i i I mean i can't at this point i my my hands have been chopped off metaphorically so i can't reach out with that that net um in the way that i used to but i don't think that's even necessarily the most fruitful use of my time and energy at this point. The point, if if there was any point to reaching out and trying to get at this message to as many people as possible, it was to activate them and to let get them in, in, involved in issues that matter in shaping the world, changing things. I don't just want to talk until I'm blue in the face about, oh, here's what the bad people are doing to you. No, no, no. What do we do with this information? How do we grow a community that will see us through these times? And in a sense, I know this sounds you know, this can be uh, Pollyannish or whatever. Uh, people will take it in, a, in, a, in uh, whatever way they will take it. But it is absolutely true that you can, we cannot progress and actually create something new in this world until we face the dark times of tyranny growing. That is when freedom and people who care about that will rise and new things will happen and battles will happen and we will not win every battle and things will look dark and who knows in the end we may not win i don't know all i know is i want to live my life uh, by the principles that i believe in fighting for the things that i actually want in life family community uh, togetherness people with with other people in community living life in beautiful nature that's what i want and i so we have to go through some dark times to get there because unfortunately as the last hundred years or so of the western developed liberal democracies have proven if people are just you know have enough beer and popcorn and baseball games and whatever they'll just sit back and let things happen and things will go to hell and here we are we're in hell so uh, you know i hope the people who have woken up by this point are looking for ways out of this and that's that's ultimately what i see uh, this is what i'm interested in at any rate i don't know what my role is what my mission i don't like to speak in such sweeping terms but i know just personally i'm motivated and interested in what we can do to actually shape things for the better i, I think that's the best way to look at at, at the current situation and and just the best way to live your life in general i mean i, I really like how you put that are uh, referring to kind of like st- reaching into the matrix to pull people out of it and uh, you know when when there's dark times around us i mean it, it can be discouraging when you're kind of tapped into what's really going on. And uh, maybe you've listened to too much James Corbett and you're feeling, you're feeling like there's just you know, a huge conspiracy around us here. But at the same time, I mean, this it's kind of, um, I don't know. I kind of look at it as if you, if you, if the, if these are the times, these are the hardest times to maybe stick by your principles. This is the hardest time for a lot of people that maybe they think, well, I don't want to comply with a mandate, but I have to feed my family and this and that. And the harder choice might be, I mean, not my, I mean, in, in the short term, you know, the, the harder choice for a lot of people will be not complying where the easier thing to do is just comply and to keep things going. And, and most people will do that, but some people won't. And a lot of people won't actually a, a decent amount of people anyway, maybe not a majority, certainly not a majority actually. Uh, but, but, but when you live by your principles and, and you stick to your guns, even if 
if it makes things more difficult in the short term, like you, you, you're off YouTube when you probably could have censored yourself and stayed on YouTube. So, and maybe in the short term, you re- you reach less people, but you find the right people doing it that way. Yeah, and you find, exactly. you find the people yep. that are going to be your community. And that's, we can't necessarily change the world. I don't think, but we can create our own world and, and kind of, you know, influence who's around us and that yeah. can change our own world. And that's, that's the world that matters. A hundred percent. Absolutely. Right. Because at some point, like, why do I want to reach all these people that I, I have to convince and, Oh, please, Please believe me on this and that. And, you know, no, I, I I don't care about that. I just want to reach my people, my audience. I know they're out there and the wider I can reach that net, the more of those people I can bring in. But at some point I've got to consolidate that and say, you know, if you found me, great. And it's, it's, I don't even, it's kind of laughable. It's kind of laugh not to cry. I don't know. But I've seen, for example, someone created a Corbett Report YouTube page after I went down the has nothing to do with me. I don't know who it is, but they're just uploading my videos or they were uploading my videos. I don't think they've been able to for the past month or so. I I, I think they tried to upload my RFK Jr. video and it immediately got taken down. So anyway, whatever, it's being struck and uh, will be removed at some point. But I see in the comments of that fake whatever YouTube channel, um, people going, James, I got unsubscribed from your channel, but I'm glad you're back online. <laughs> or someone saying, oh, I saw the, the RFK video got taken down. Does anyone know where I can find it? <laughs> it's like, if you, if by this point, if you have watched more than say three of my videos and you don't know how to go to CorbettReport.com to see my videos, <laughs> then I just, there's no hope. I, I'm not going to continue reaching out to the people who literally don't know how the internet works. I just, I can't do that. Well, let's make sure at least the extremely intelligent lines of Liberty fans <laughs> can find all your work. So obviously you mentioned CorbettReport.com. That's, that's pretty much the main hub, obviously, but, but feel free to plug away on, on that and anything else you've got in the works. I don't know if you've got any documentaries that you're working yeah. on that you want to plug, but feel free to plug away. Okay. Uh, CorbettReport.com, yes, is the link to remember. In fact, once you go to CorbettReport.com and bookmark it, you should also then look on the sidebar down towards the bottom. There's a Corbett Report on IPFS link. If you click that, you will get the IPFS backup of the Corbett Report for if and when the domain name seizures start in earnest and they start taking things like CorbettReport.com and, oh, you can't go there. That's a naughty site. Anyway, there will be an IPFS backup of all of this information. Um, so uh, having said that, I do post to, as I say, Archive, Minds, uh, BitChute, uh, Odyssey, but it's probably best to, to go through CorbettReport.com. Um, and all of my work is there for free. Everything we've mentioned today, people can just search that in, on my site and they'll be able to watch, listen, read for free. Having said that, yes, documentaries. Um, people might have seen that on, on as I tend to do on 9-11, I released a 9-11 related documentary. Uh, I released the first part of a series on, um, oh boy, <laughs> I have just forgotten the name, uh, False Flags. A his secret history of Al Qaeda. My God, I've forgotten the name of my own documentary. I'm so thick and thick in the woods. Anyway, it is at CorbettReport.com/slash A L Q A E D A Al Qaeda, and uh, you can go and watch the first part of that documentary. The second part of that documentary is coming. Drumroll, please. Before the new year, so uh, there will be a substantial second part to that documentary, and guess what? There will be a third part in the 2022. So uh, stay tuned for that. But that's the big documentary project I'm working on at the moment. The other thing I would like to direct people's attention to, I just did a course at Renegade University on mass media history, um, which I thought was, I don't know about what other people thought, but personally, I thought it was really, really interesting. (laughs) So if you want to check that out, it's at renegadeuniversity.com. All right, James Corbett. Well, there's no shortage of James Corbett material for you guys to check out, especially if you go back in the archives, you could probably spend the the rest of, well, not the rest of this year, probably the rest of next year too, uh, catching up if you wanted to. So uh, James, thanks so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. Keep up the great work. Keep on roaring. Thanks, Mark. All right, kitty cats, I hope you enjoyed my conversation with the great, and I do mean great, James Corbett. Please do check out his work, by the way, at thecorbettreport.com, especially uh, right now when people like him are having uh, their channels removed from YouTube where they're normally able to reach a large amount of people. Uh, It really does mean a lot to go over there directly and support his work. And uh, I got to say, James is someone I've been watching and listening to for well before I was a podcaster, uh, well before I'm pretty sure I stumbled upon some of his work work 
even before my early like Ron Paul uh, campaign days. So uh, he's been doing this for a long time and just just one of the absolute best out there about breaking things down. And he does it all with research. He's not just, you know, wildly theorizing like we do on Conspiracy Corner, one of the many amazing shows you can get over on the Lions of Liberty Patreon. You can find that at patreon.com slash Lions of Liberty. Of course, for the Patreon adverse, we also now have a locals page. You can find that at lionsofliberty.locals.com. Always, you can support us in this journey as well, because I'm sure we are very much on the chopping block with the YouTube masters. This may very well be our, our last one, uh, considering the, the kind of conversation we have with James here. So we shall see, but you can find us over on Odyssey always. And uh, that is the key. So I would actually just recommend heading over to Odyssey right now and uh, following our channel there and finding our videos there, because at some point in the not so distant future, we're probably just not going to be showing up on YouTube anymore. That That's my gut feeling, but, but we shall see. Of course, if you were one of our supporters, on Patreon or Locals, you could have seen this interview with James Corbett last week live when I recorded it because believe it or not, these are pre-recorded shows on Monday, uh, but you can't get the live versions if you do support us now. Uh, this being pre-recorded, currently, as you listen to this, I am probably still chilling in Sayulita, Mexico, or maybe in Puerto Vallarta right now, hanging out with Johnny Perfita of Peddling Fiction. I'm just going to report that I'm sure I did have an amazing time, uh, but I should have a podcast coming for you probably next week from that event um, if everything went well, technologically speaking, in the past. Who knows? But I, I'm going to assume it did. So look for that next week. Uh, if not, I'll have some other interview for you because that's how we work it here. We keep churning out the content for you each and every week, not just each and every week, three days a week here on the Lions of Liberty feed. Of course, you got me with the flagship on Mondays, Brian McWilliams every single Wednesday with his Wack a duty, wack a duty. I don't know what you know what I'm trying to say. He's he's a wacky guy who says wacky things, and he does it every single Wednesday on Electric Liberty Land. While John Odermatt, the uh, stoic John Odermatt, wraps things up every single Thursday with Finding Freedom. You get all these shows, all three for the price of one. That price is free, my friends. We just ask you hit that subscribe button, come back every week, and keep joining this conversation. Keep roaring with us each and every week here. Until next time, my friends. Live long and live free.